After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our King. For true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her blood, on her, the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was sitting on the throne. And they cried, Amen, Hallelujah. Then a voice from the throne saying, Praise God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both great and small. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Then the angel said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. At this I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, Don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and sisters who hold to Jesus' testimony. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Well, uh, it's all part of the season, isn't it? I tend to think of white suits going with Cuba and fedora hats. Uh, or bad televangelists. Or um, singing evangelists. I, I don't usually think of them as something classy or something I would wear. But uh, it is the week after Resurrection Sunday. And he is risen, and your response is, he is risen indeed. Let's try that. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. Alleluia. It is a wonderful season. I had a, a great week the week before last uh, celebrating uh, Resurrection season with you, the uh, Maundy Thursday, which just means the, the God's command that we serve and love one another. And and doing that in communion Thursday night was wonderful. And Friday night, having the opportunity to um, very dramatically uh, witness and, and be a part of the extinguishing of the light with the death of Christ, the light that has gone out of the world. And then Saturday to be with you as he rested and, and to speak of that rest in terms of the rest that we can enter in contrast to the rest of those who were trying to execute him and those who were trying to keep him sealed in the tomb and how, uh, how unrestful and how futile and how hypocritical all that really was. And then a few of us were here Sunday morning with Christ Church celebrating the resurrection and that was a great experience too. Uh, they do things a little differently than we do. And yet at the end of the day, brothers and sisters in Christ all. And so what a wonderful way to celebrate uh, something vital and alive. So that was the first time the tacky suit went on. It was last week. And uh, you'll see it maybe a couple more times this season. We, uh, is other reminders of our season come in the white cloth on the, cloth, on the, on the cross. Jesus' grave clothes were folded 
and neatly placed in the empty tomb. And uh, white is a symbol of many things, but uh, he, he is risen, and that's the symbol of, of resurrection, along with gold, the royal king. And then uh, we have a candle burning today, not because we've said prayers to deceased uh, people or saints, but because the light is back in the world, and we're going to visually remember that for a couple of weeks. The light that was extinguished in crucifixion and cruelty is reignited as God steps forth to claim again the kingdom of this world. And that's why we can sing that it is the kingdom of his world and of our God. Amen. I wanted to take a couple of weeks to talk about worship. So this is the first of two parts. Worship is... uh, complex subject. You can go to seminary and hear entire seminars on it. Four-hour courses lasting a quarter or semester. And so it's not something I'm going to be able to fully nail in even two sermons. But worship is why we say we're gathered here, and it's always good to get a reminder of what that really means for us. I think the first thing that I want to observe about worship is that it is a verb. Worship is something active. It is an action and it is something we do. It is not passive. You may wonder if you're fairly new here or if you've been here a long time and haven't really thought about it, why do we sing many hymns together? Why is it that week to week different people are reading the lectionary or the text? Why is it that we have the involvement that we do? We're sitting, we're kneeling, we're standing, we're adopting different body postures. Why is it that we do the things that we do in worship? And it has to do with helping us be participants of the action that is happening and responders, and this is the key here, to the initiations of God. That is really the nature of worship. It is active and it is responsive. Why do I say responsive? a little theory here. It is responsive because I have not created myself. I am a created being. I am in a category other than creator. And I owe my life and my existence, I owe my personhood and my all to the one, capital O, who created me. That is responsive. I have not yet found God in the universe. I know there has been language about that over the years. Have you found God? I always found that to be kind of an odd phrase. Because in my experience and observation, we don't find God. We wake up to the fact that he's been tapping on our shoulder our whole lives. In my observation, God finds us. He seeks us. You've heard the story of the 99 sheep and the one lost. One would think that, pardon me, 
one would think that with 99 in the fold, that would be enough. After all, spring is coming and they're going to have more babies. But the shepherd leaves the 99 and goes out seeking the one, the lost. Now, in all honesty, I have to say he might eventually eat that one for lunch. But he does seek the lost sheep. And it is God who comes seeking us. So because God is the one who initiates our very being, and God is the one who initiates the relationship that we have with him, and because God has planned for our redemption from the dawn of time, and perhaps before, and since God is the one who took on human flesh in condescension, we say, because creator other took on created flesh and dwelt among us and showed the Father's glory and taught us how to live and communicated anew the grace and regard and love of a God who would go so far as not only to condescend, to take on our form, but would die in agony to show us the love of the Father. And in this we are broken down. In this we are reminded that in fact we have gone astray. In this we are reminded of our rebellion against the only trustworthy being in the universe. Our disobedience of the only one who commands us out of our best interest, not his own. And we are brought to a place of grace Grace not belonging to us, grace belonging to him. And we are redeemed, and we are saved, and we respond. Worship is responsive. It gives our hearts and our minds a chance to acknowledge the order of things in the universe. So today, and I'm not going to belabor this point, I would rather toss it to you good and hard and let you chew on it a while than belabor it. Today we're talking about how these things bring us to a focus. Because my life is uh, not unlike yours in many ways, perhaps unlike yours in a few, but Sabbath morning, um, <clears throat> I may have slept well, I may not have. Last night, it wasn't a particularly good night of rest. I need to put out a $500 or a $1,000 reward for the dead body of a bird that seems to like to sing in the loudest voice between 1 a.m. and 4 a.m. I can close my windows and put earplugs in, and I can still hear this shrill little thing. And it mocks me all night long. And I want it dead. Spring will be a much more beautiful time without this bird. I had one of these in my home in Los Angeles, too. I don't know how I got so lucky to have one again. Anyway, cheery little thought that was, wasn't it? Uh, so much for, for that. Uh, sleep doesn't always happen for us, does it? We come tired. Or we realize that there are things we have to make up or do. Or we go to put on our suit of clothes or whatever it might be and find that the two pounds we gained this week 
makes them tighter than we wanted them to be. Or that we forgot to go to the tailor and get our sleeves shortened appropriately. Sorry about that. Maybe next week. Or whatever the case, you, you, know, you can relate. It's just, this is my story, but it, it, you've been there. Maybe you had to get somebody out the door. And at the end of the day, you go to Sabbath school and church, and in my case, I'm moving from one thing to another. I'm speaking, uh, thinking I'm going to teach one class, but nobody is there. But then people are there. But then I've been pulled into early teens because they need a teacher and don't have one. But now people are here. So what do I do with my other class? And then it's time for church. And then it's time for etc., etc., etc. And there are so many things that distract us. You're coming into the week just like maybe you've been thinking about the fact that interest rates are going up and you need to refinance your home, but it's a challenge. Or maybe you're thinking about that new car that you need because yours has a hundred and no two hundred and forty thousand miles on it or maybe you're thinking about uh, the fact that your child got a D this this week in a particular class or school and is struggling with something and how to help them maybe it's far more serious than that maybe a loved one of yours is in the hospital or we come with the burdens and the baggage and the distractions of who we are we're hungry, we're tired, we're thirsty, we're annoyed. We're distracted, we're preoccupied. We're depressed. We're elated. We're all over the place as human beings, aren't we? And our experience takes us to the highs and lows of life and we bring all that here this morning. And what happens? And that's really your call. Because the call of God in worship is one of refocus and renewal. Cast your cares upon me, he says. Let not your hearts be troubled, he says. Learn of me, he says. And in these moments, we get to cast all of the morning and all of the previous night aside. In these moments, we get to throw away the pressures of work and week or the desperation that we feel because we're looking for work and it's not yet come. In these moments, we get to forget the sufferings for a minute of our lives and our families' lives and those we love and bring those sufferings to the God who suffered. And so if you turn to the text that were read this morning, Psalm 96, don't go to Psalm 69. It's a very different kind of text. Go to Psalm 96, and while you're there, let's take a look at what it teaches us about focus. The opening line of this is a very, very famous one, and one we have used many times in brief. One through three is one of the most common calls to worship. Because for many people, worship is music, and music is worship, and vice versa. And that little equation sums it all up. And so when they think about worshiping the Lord, it's primarily in this joyful noise mode that we're talking about. But I want to assure you 
that music is not worship and worship is not music. Music is a component of an experience we can have in worship. It's something that can serve to help us with focus. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, praise his name, proclaim his salvation day after day, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all people. When Jesus was being praised, he said, if this doesn't happen, even the what will cry out? The rocks will cry out. Sing to the Lord all the earth. This is inclusive. This is total. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all people. And I, I don't know if I finished that sentence. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Right off the bat, you have several things happening. We have the new song that we're lifting to God in praise. The earth, God's creation, is responsive we are proclaiming the salvation of God, and that is a reason to sing. We are declaring his lordship and his glory in the world, and that is a reason to sing. We are speaking of his responses to our prayers and our problems and our needs. We are speaking of his deliverances when we speak of his marvelous deeds as we give a testimony to the people in our lives and indeed all the people of the earth. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. For he, all the gods of the nations are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and glory are in his sanctuary. Now, we don't have a huge problem in this contemporary uh, Christian society and secular society with classic idolatry. At least that's what we would think. It isn't statues of wood or gold or those kinds of things so much that at least the Western Christian world are inclined to worship. We tend rather to be idolaters in other ways, don't we? We're the me generation. Most of what we pursue is to gratify ourselves and to satisfy our own longings. To comfort our own cravings to cover our own nakedness. Most of the time, our idolatry is hidden in selfishness and self-absorption. Our idolatry is the tendency to put self and ego first. And we make idols of many things. Anything that you wouldn't give up freely because it already belongs to God might be something more than just a thing to you. 
And so when we think of God as someone to be feared, we think that our minds are drawn to respect and the realization of our place once again. Verse 7, ascribe to the Lord, O families of nations, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name, bring an offering and come into his courts, worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness, tremble before him all the earth. Now, this is incredible poetry, but I might, since I'm preaching about stewardship in three weeks, point something out. When we ascribe to God something, we are not falsely doing so. It sounds kind of funny, doesn't it? Declare God to be this and this as if we're the ones who make it happen. But when we ascribe or when we declare that God is righteous or that God is holy or that God is above all things or that God is the greatest that can be, when we declare and ascribe these things, it is not for his benefit, it is for our own. We are reminded again of the order, the proper order, the created order, the redeemed order of things. We're reminded of where we belong in it. And it says, bring an offering. Now, in the Old Testament time, this was often a sacrifice, often in the form of an animal. Jesus was the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. And so I wonder what offering might be spoken of here. It's worth exploring, but whatever it might be, and it could be and should be a number of things, our offering could be a sacrifice of praise. And what I mean by that is simply an attitude, a laying down of our own feelings or our own um, negativity or our own complexities and distractions at the moment, and a deliberate act of singing or speaking something in praise. Our offering might be our tithes and our offerings which remind us of the source of everything, of our existence and subsistence, of the ways in which we're provided for, of the graces that come to us who have much and the responsibilities that go with that. And so we have tithes and offerings in that sense that can be brought. It might be an offering of gifts. You're talented, capable, intelligent people. And you have so much to give. Whether it's something you volunteer for here, or whether it's an encouragement, or the warmth you can offer another, or an instrumental offering, Bring it, because you are responding to the Lordship of Christ. You're responding to the greatness of God. You're responding to his call on your life. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy. 
They will sing before the Lord, for he comes. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his truth. Well, that takes us to yet another level in which he is other, doesn't it? He creates, he redeems, and he judges. He is, in fact, the righteous judge. And while we yet face final judgment, we praise him, acknowledging that he is righteous and true, that his judgments are just and right, that his integrity is without question in the universe, and ours is always suspect. Revelation does the same thing, doesn't it? John the Revelator is describing something yet to come. He is describing the worship response of the great multitude. Hopefully you're not of the uh, odd theological persuasion that says only 144,000 people are going to be in heaven. Hopefully you realize that the scriptures describe a great multitude, virtually without number, this sea of the redeemed of God. And this great multitude acts responsively even in heaven. And they aren't saying it quietly. Where's Ruthie? Ruthie, you did a good job reading today. But I tell you what, it's not going to sound like that in heaven. Because you didn't shout. And it says the great multitude in heaven will be shouting, Alleluia! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. And again they shouted, Alleluia! Praise our God, all you his servants. You who fear him, both small and great. And then he heard what sounded like the great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting again. Can you hear it? Okay, let me bring this home a little bit. If you've ever been to a theater or if you have good home theater, you know something called THX. It makes a dragster sound like a dragster. It makes a stock car race sound like a stock car race. And if you turn the volume up enough, you'll need your earplugs. It makes a football game come to life and it makes a movie spectacular. Surrounded by sound and speakers, an environment not dissimilar from being in the open is created, except everything is pure and clean and channeled and coming at you in a way designed to maximize your viewing pleasure. THX. This is going to be better. I have a ripping 8-inch eight, eight woofer on my system. And that thing can make my living room rattle and vibrate. Some of our neighbors have cars that do that, but I have, anyway. 
This is like peals of thunder, bolts of lightning flashing. This is a roar like you've never heard. This is cosmic. This is huge. And again, the word Alleluia. For our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. And it says in parenthesis in the NIV study Bible, fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. And let me ask you, how many righteous acts are there of the saints? It's kind of a trick question, isn't it? Because all of our acts are filthy. Isn't that what Paul says? My righteousness is as a filthy rag. But Jesus has ordained for us in advance even of our salvation good things for us to do in his name. Jesus is our righteousness and has given us acts of righteousness. And the alleluias continue to ring as we respond to his goodness in saving us and his goodness in commissioning us and giving us good acts to do. Then the angel said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. What a scene. And I'm not even beginning to explore the fullness of it or do it justice. What a scene. At this I fell at his feet to worship him, and you and I would too, by the way, in abject uh, terror probably. But he said to me, don't do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. This is a response. And God is always our focus. God is always the one to be praised. God is the one for whom we sing songs, even if at times they may not be familiar to us. God is the one to whom we pray, for He is faithful. God is the one to whom we bring our gifts and our sacrifices, as it were. God is the one who created. God is the one who set things in order. God is one. And I started to think of an aside. You remember that line in This Is My Father's Word, the music of the spheres? And there are composers like Holst who wrote the planets and that kind of thing along that theme. 
and I don't know if it was ever proven scientifically or not, but there was understood that each of the planets had its own sort of tonal frequency. That the universe itself gives off musical praise to God. And that's what that hymn is referring to. Creation itself speaks. Redemption screams at us a multitude of messages. And Jesus offers us words of comfort and hope. And we have a righteous judge. So we have every reason to worship. But if our focus isn't where it should be, we miss the opportunity to be a part of having our world and our universe reordered. I want to say a a quick thing about that. I have said, and I stand by it, that Sabbath is about six or more principles. That not all of these principles are in operation at the same time because at times the, the activity involved in honoring them might compete. I have highlighted for you in Sabbath keeping the importance of weekly worship and the Sabbath. But I have also gone on record, my son is throwing it back in my face so I know it's out there. That if you're here 52 weeks a year, you might want to look at doing something other to fulfill some of the other six principles. Because there's rest, there's worship, there's relationships with God and our fellow man, there's recreation or recreation as I call it, there's freedom, there's service, God calls us to many good things and has given us this day that we might find time and space and wholeness. And I would suggest to you in keeping with that sermon that the importance of gathering as oft as we can weekly for corporate worship is the reordering of the universe. That's a pretty big deal. Because in being here and in focusing ourselves and our minds on the God who was and is and is to come, the God who created and the God who redeemed in condescension and agony and death and resurrection. The God who lives and listens and intercedes and answers. And the God who is the righteous judge. The God who is wholly other to whom we respond when we take time to respond, the universe finds its proper order.
So what we do here is a big deal. And what our brothers and sisters are doing in other Adventist churches and other non-Adventist churches is a big deal. As long as the focus is our Lord and Savior. And so, O Lord, we praise you. The focus of our worship, may it always be you. And may you fill our lives with grace and peace and order because we love you. Amen.